Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Voss, pleasure to have you on the BIOS podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Um, can you give a little introduction on your yourself and your background? Happy to. Thank you for having me. I'd say my path into VC, like many others, is very non or untraditional. And I think that many people say this. Is there even a single path to get into VC? Uh, for me, it comes from this immense love of building and being an entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was like, I don't know, 17 or 18 in trying to monitor fitness parameters from a treadmill or an elliptical and send it to a computer. And I ran that while I was doing as an undergrad. And, and then uh, thanks to the wonderful world of US immigration and not being able to start your own company, I went on to grad school. I loved it. I was the school of medicine at Hopkins. And while I was there, Unlike most people who use their PhDs to truly work on something which is scientifically groundbreaking, hopefully I did a little bit of that, but mine was an applied project. I got to work with patients, really have an impact on early cancer detection by using cancer epigenetics to detect cancer early. And I left that world to go in to get a broad sense of business because I never had that true business fundamentals. I went to McKinsey and Company. I loved my time at McKinsey and the people I met there are phenomenal, but... I left that world to be able to work with some great people in New York to build what is called even today the GLG Institute, which is the world's largest network of CEOs. Hey, it was a two-sided marketplace. We said, why not just get retired CEOs to come work for us and connect these retired CEOs or regulators from FDA, EMA, heads of R&D with people who are sitting executives in pharma and tech companies. We built and scaled that. It still exists today, but we have tapped into that. And while I was there and building it, I was reached out to by Stuart Peterson at Artist Ventures. And he had invested in a company called Stemcentrics. And we got to talking about STEM and he was talking about potentially bringing in other advisors and scientific people to help with STEM. And we started talking about innovation and healthcare and this huge untapped world out there to be able to grow this space. Let's remember that in the mid 2010 to 2015, 2016, not many people even in the Valley really wanted to tackle tough life sciences problems. It was largely all tech and SaaS and consumer. What's the next Facebook? What's the next Instagram? And Stuart did. He said he saw this early and Stuart said, hey, let's actually spend time in tackling these really tough life sciences problems and liquidity will come, we'll have an impact on the world. And, and I totally fell in line with, that, line with that mission. And I said, yes, and what if we could marry that world of innovation with the people from this strong network of CEOs and of people that I've built in my past life? And that came together really well. So my role into venture and build is, comes from a world of having 
founded and run startups myself, I know what it's like to knock on the door of a VC to ask for money. I know exactly what it feels like to be running out of money. I know exactly what it feels like when you have to have tough employees and have those conversations that are not fun. But now I get to do it on the other side and hopefully bring a little bit of that learning and empathy to helping these founders grow. And so that is my foray and path into being a GP at Artist Ventures, where we tackle a unique opportunity of the intersection of tech and bio as we invest in what we call tech bio. Uh, we've flipped biotech on its head. We take an engineering or West Coast approach in fundamentally addressing and funding founders with bold visions, tackling these tough problems. Voss, kind of what drew you to, to VC in particular? What was kind of that spark for you? I think that there are two trains of thought, or two schools of thought into uh, how people can build companies and what venture capital is. One is the fact that founders are inherently brilliant and they'll just figure out a way and a path forward. The second is one which says, no, founders are, yes, are inherently brilliant, but with a little bit of help from VCs, you can actually change the trajectory of the company. I firmly believe that is the case. And so having built my own companies, uh, I will say I don't come from a family where I necessarily have all the business connections and contacts. I didn't grow up with a family where people, I could call on someone to ask uh, question A versus question B, how do you actually implement and move forward? So to me, the role of a VC it became even more important of the people who have invested in you, who believe in you, and that they can actually change the trajectory of like what you're building. So to me, I notice so many peers who have started their own companies who unfortunately uh, had passive investors. And the outcomes were commiserate with that. It's just they could have had what I thought were brilliant ideas and multi-billion dollar exits, and yet that didn't happen. And so my vow was to actually be an investor where I can truly partner with the people I'm investing in and help them with all those difficult things that come their way and allow them to really have a chance and their best shot at making it happen. So that has probably inspired me to be an investor. I get to work with uh, most brilliant people across the world. Uh, as you know, I did get my PhD in something which was super narrow, cancer epigenetics, but like now I get to get a PhD every day as I work with these founders. And that I think to me is what motivates me to help learn, but also work with them in sharing what I've learned along the way. So with that in mind, Voss, can you share with us about Artist Ventures and what you do there? Sure. Uh, I'm a general partner at Artist Ventures. We invest at the intersection of technology and biology. As you can see, like the past two decades have just been in slow motion. You get to see these two worlds that have been desperate two different worlds coming together ever so slightly. And I think that there are like maybe seven things that have actually happened that have enabled this convergence to actually happen right now. And we're living through it just at the beginning. And these seven things are really quickly, number one is the cost of sequencing has dropped, thereby it has unlocked the ability for anyone, you don't have to be an elite at Hopkins or at Stanford to be able to now sequence someone's DNA or RNA, you can do that in the garage, but you have now unlocked our genetic code and information. The second is the idea of digitization of biology. Sure, thank 23andMe or Ancestry, but you have now taken what would have been something which would have just stayed in a book somewhere to now be digitized and shared online. But it's not just 23andMe, it's your blood pressure, your 
EMR, your, your EKG, whatever else it is, is now something which can be shared electronically. Uh, the third is the fact that we can now compute massive amounts of data really, really quickly. And I remember grad school, take protein simulations, you'd have to run them at night, wake up next morning and hope that the simulation's complete. And now you can do this in a matter of a few milliseconds, a few seconds. Uh, the fourth is the idea we can store all this information, right? Like, I mean, think about by 2025, 95% of the world's data is going to be biological data, genomics, proteomics, metabolomics. And now we have an ability to save that in the, in the cloud and store it and share it. The next trend has to be with the fact that we have understood biology in ways that we never have before. We have learned about new pathways. I mean, think about the last 10 years. We have learned about things like our own immune system that can fight cancers. Personalized therapies have actually become a reality. We've also, let's think about like CAR-Ts, but also we've discovered new viruses that we never thought existed. And synthetic biology is real. The sixth and seventh trend of what makes it real and why it's exciting for us at this tech bio is this number six is Look at pharma and the R&D and productivity. And what they used to do in 1995 with 75% of the R&D being done in-house is now flipped where a majority of the innovation pipeline is through private companies like the ones that we are funding. And the last trend is the same in terms of like a, a overall macro trend where it comes to, to BD is with private companies and funding, we do think that this area will continue to get funded, which means there's more innovation talent of people moving and leaving industry to start and be able to do this in a nimble way, but yet build. And so we're happy to uh, support the acquisition trend of, of the fact that the cost of drug development has continued to stay about the same as what it was in 2000. And through these nimble startups now, we can hopefully apply technology in ways that and it doesn't have to be the full spectrum in drug development or drug discovery, but in areas and aspects where it makes sense to reduce the overall burden of the cost of drug development. And so those are the seven things I think have come together, which makes it exciting for us at artists to tackle a section where, again, biology meets computer science. And we see this in a host of different ways. Yes, major, many of it is related to pharma, but we also see things where we see newer technologies for take, uh, your ability to monitor your heart and manage your disease or cardiovascular disease. We can now do that remotely, remote patient monitoring telemedicine. And that's an area which we're pretty excited about. Boss, thanks for, for giving us the context there and um, the exciting <laughs> trends that is tech bio that have all emerged. Uh, I feel like it's the, the wild, wild west again and we get to, to pinch ourselves every day that we live through these um, amazing revolutions concurrently uh, and have the opportunity to make some investments that hopefully can, can drive patient impact in this space. Um, can you talk to me kind of about your portfolio and some of the uh, manifestations of this tech biothesis and how you form that? Sure. So the way we think about our founders as well as our companies that we partner with is we typically like bold ideas, ideas that will change the way we interact with technologies or live our lives. So let's start with what we don't like. For instance, if there was a simple app that can change the ability for you to hail 
uh, I don't know, a provider to come to you or perhaps like get a drug delivered to you. We're not saying that's not important, but it's perhaps not in the remit of what makes it exciting to us. We love fundamentally new science. So be it new pathways that have been unexplored. Uh, perhaps it is taking age old technologies, but we have a better way of doing it. Or we like the idea of just enabling a workflow improvement, which has never been done before, which will, uh, and so those are areas that, let's make it a little more specific. So I'd say in our world, about 50% of our companies right now in the tech bio world are companies that are already generating revenue. They have already found somewhat of a product market fit and they're now expanding uh, their their ability to make an impact on patient lives and another 50 percent about two to three years from commercialization so in this world though we have tackled things from genomics we have for instance uh we have investors in a company called freenome which will change the way you get screened or diagnosed for colorectal cancer so no more colonoscopies and or minimize or the idea of using stool samples to be able to tell you the propensity of developing a colon cancer, which we can now help screen uh, using a multiomics platform. So that's a liquid biopsy, all the way to a company called ID by DNA in the metagenomics space, where we bring to life for the first time hypothesis-free detection in infectious disease. So I don't know, Dennis Chas, I don't have to have you both come and tell me that you are suffering from a sore throat, a runny nose, yellow eyes for me to say, I think you may have X disease. Let me test you for it. Maybe that fails. Then I test you again for something else. That's today's standard of care, hypothesis-driven medicine. What if instead I could screen every bacteria, virus, fungus, parasite that lives in you and on you? Uh, metagenomics, but we screen you for all that is. And I can now say, I think you not only have X pathogen, but whoa, you have a co-infection as well. Let's actually treat you with an antibiotic if necessary or not. So that's another kind of company which sits in our space. So the first was a genomics example. The second is a metagenomics. And then we have sitting in the middle, a company called Echo, which changes cardiopulmonary care as we know it. It takes a simple, humble stethoscope and gives it power by using AI to sound an EKG data. So the stethoscope through that, they've acquired about a million unique patient sounds. They're then able to apply algorithms to read these sound data at scale and tell you what is normal and when there's an aberration in your heart or lungs. And then all the way in the other side of our portfolio spectrum, you have companies that are using, that are gene therapies or are using computational biology or parallel chemistry to develop new class of drugs. So we have a company called Unnatural Products that is doing that with uh, parallel chemistry to tackle the build for the drugging the undruggable by building next generation macrocycle drugs. And we have companies like Excision and Locus that are using gene editing one using CRISPR-Cas9, the other using CRISPR-Cas3 to cure us of infections. In one case, viral infections like HIV, uh, Hep B, JC virus, and HSV. And the other side, multi-drug resistance, uh, 
uh, in, through infections that you may have had and bacterial infections by using precision antibiotics. Uh, hopefully that gives you a little flavor of where we are. And as you can see, even with these few examples, and th there are many more in our portfolio, but each, each of these companies, are, we're thoughtful in the sense that we want to support these bold visions because if it does, it doesn't matter where you live. You could be in Korea or in Africa. You could be here in the US. And yet if these technologies work, like your life will be impacted for the better. It's a really fascinating look into how this tech bio thesis has really changed the world. It's also been said that this marrying of technology and biology has led to a new breed of founder, uh, one that's equally as knowledgeable in the core biological problem um, as the data and technology side. Are you noticing this no new breed of founder and how do you evaluate teams in general in this space? Teams are very important. Founders are very important because a large part, what is the I mean, you could have the best idea and the best technology, but if you don't have the right people to take it forward, uh, it is uh, usually these companies don't do well. In fact, I, I say that to all of my founders, it's not just founders, but the team they build as well and who they surround themselves with, which makes a huge difference. So is there a new breed of founders? Uh, I do think so. I think that this is uh, challenging in the sense that who's going to win this space? Is it going to be an ex-physician from a top medical university who's seen it in the trenches uh, and who will just learn and bring in the tech people to figure it out? Or is it going to be an ex, I don't know, a Google or a Facebook employee who's like, I'm so passionate about healthcare and build this. And our strong hypothesis here is that it will be neither if they can't work together. So our whole goal and mission at Artis is to bring these two worlds together and bring the ecosystem together because it's important to help bridge these worlds of different thinkers. Hey, this is true diversity of thought at work, right? Two disparate worlds and how you've thought about life and, and what you've done before coming together and have to work together. And that actually is evident even in our team. Half our team is, uh, uh, is our people, people from the life sciences world and the other half comes from the world of tech and finance. So it's, we, we live and breathe that even in our team construction of like the partners at Artists, uh, which is the same as how we expect our founders and their teams to work as well. How do we diligence these teams and what do we look for? Um, at Artists, this is something which is in the last 15 years of our existence, uh, this has been something which has been very true to who we are, um, whether it was uh, companies like YouTube that we have led the Series B or STEM Centrics, where we led the first institutional round of financing. Um, even in these early teams, the founders made a huge difference to why they were, I mean, eventually got funding from artists and that past success and philosophy in supporting great founders has carried through to even artists today. Uh, for us, part of what makes a good founder uh, is in this world is like I already said, one, are you able to work across the aisle with people who are not like you? The second is as you operate in a world of technical complexity, perhaps you've not come from the world of pharma, but you're working in the regulated environment. Are you responsible enough to have built a team, even if it's not you, to be able to take you through this regulated world? We're not gonna cut corners. Uh, there may be few who say, don't worry about regulatory that needs to change. We don't believe that. We think there's a reason why there's regulatory organizations and we think that overall people's safety is very important. So for us, 
the question is, are these founders, have they thought about that? Uh, the third is healthcare is much more than just being able to build product. You may build the coolest product, yet if it's not reimbursed, who cares? So to some extent, do you have the team and the ability to know how this is gonna fit into the workflow of a provider or a pharmaceutical company? Or who's going to pay for it to make that happen? And I think that's important to us as we look to uh, evaluate these founders. So the other part of how we vet these founders, one of the things about Artist Ventures, which is per perhaps different than uh, many other funds in the world, is a genesis story for like what I've done in my past life, as well as like what other artist uh, folks have done, which we have now amalgamated into what we call artist pioneers. So in my past life, uh, I was able to build with alongside Jeff Kindler, who is also now at Artists. He was the former CEO of Pfizer. Uh, we came together along with a group of other people in New York to build what is called the GLG Institute. That happens to be the world's largest network of CEOs even today. And as we built this business, we fundamentally believed that the best learning happens through discussions and conversations with people who have been in your shoes before. So these are operators. These are ex-FDA commissioners, ex-EMA director, head of, ex head of CMS, to current executives in pharma, med device companies, and tech. We've picked 30 of the best people from the world of our past, and we've brought them on to be partners at Artist Ventures. They are our pioneers, and they help with identifying these founders or supplementing them or complementing them or giving them the guidance in order to help them operate as rock stars, superpowers, give them the edge that they need. And so that's another part. They're involved a heavy, heavy bit in like as we pick the right founders as well, because we do want the people who are willing to take the advice and help from the network that we already have, which we think is going to be beneficial to them anyway. Voss, that's incredibly exciting. Uh, building the network that you have, the background on how you look for founders. Um, and I imagine that comes full circle when you talk about investing in companies that really have a long-term time horizon. Uh, stuff that can be impactful to patients in not only five, but in 10 years and the journey that is that process. Um, can you talk to me kind of about deep tech investing and where do you see um, artists' interests? Sure. I think that many of these do have, sometimes because of the regulatory path, yeah, the timelines and cycles can, can vary. But I think that we can be thoughtful about how we showcase some of these innovations and ensure that there's still value be, being created along the way. The way I like to break it down is, even if there's a long path, what are the value inflection points of your company? So as you look at it, take any company, whether you're like a, a company that's going to spend billions of dollars to get a rocket launched, or whether you are a company that's making novel enzymes, or whether you're a company that is building a new biologic to take to market, uh, you still have these critical moments, seminal moments in your company, which are these value inflection points. And I like to tease them out really early. What are they? Do you have the, the skill sets and team already inbuilt to be able to change that? And as long as we've clearly defined it, 
And we continue to track that progress along the way. And we're honest about it. And that's the key part. Sometimes you forget, like, and you move these goalposts just because it's the easiest thing to do. But I think it's the tough part is to sit with your founder and talk about like, why did we not get there? What could we learn from this and what can we change? But as long as we have these milestones and we hit them, I think there's still what gives us satisfaction in being able to tackle these really challenging ideas. Will they take a lot of capital? Perhaps. Uh, will they take a, a good bit of time? Yes and no. Some of our ideas that are these bold visions have accelerated significantly thanks to the partners they have. So many of our seed stage companies and series A companies are already operating. If you were to really look at them, you perhaps would sometimes forget that they're a series A company. I mean, take a look at our company Excision. We probably, I can't think of it, maybe you both can remind me if you've seen any, a seed stage company that has non-human primate data. And that is because they were thoughtful about who they partner with early. Or take Locus as a series A company. They signed an $818 million deal with Johnson & Johnson. Or we have another company on natural products that is partnered with a top five pharmaceutical company as part of their early stage, uh, they're co-developing something with, with a pharma partner and so on and so forth. And I think that, yes, maybe it's our network back to our pioneers again who help our companies operate even though they're early, look like their later stage companies. But I do think overall, what would take in the normal course, someone naturally do 10 years, we may be able to cut that down by even by half just based on how we think about partnering, think about like building and where we know just the trigger points of how to accelerate the parts that we can responsibly accelerate. Yeah, I'd love to dive in on one of the specific verticals that I think is just now coming to fruition. We talked a little bit about it earlier. You did your PhD at Johns Hopkins working on early detection technologies and artists participated in Freenomes Round B uh, and they just raised a seat. Um, why do you find the early detection space interesting from a technical perspective? And what are the different approaches being tried currently? Sure, uh, going back into way past, I still remember uh, Hopkins, uh, many a nights and many a mornings. In fact, I would have a FedEx to me from Amsterdam stool samples. So sometimes I tell people I have a really shitty job and it was, <laughs> I would have to emulsify stool samples and then, uh, cancer early and uh, it was, uh, I worked on early cancer detection in a couple of different cancers. We worked with uh, some types of blood cancer, so myelodysplastic syndrome, AML, but also things like uh, lung cancer, colon cancer, and breast cancer. But part of what we were looking at was using and trying to find epigenetic biomarkers uh, to help be predictive for early stage detection. And in my thesis, I did have a chapter about what does this all mean? And as I thought about it back then, many, many years ago, of what would it look like for this to be a company? What always haunted me was, okay, Dennis gets a test from me today. And I tell him that he has a 93% chance of developing colon cancer. Like one, how representative is this in the real world? And two, what does he do about it? And that has changed a lot since my PhD days to where it stands today. So how has it changed? Let's go there. One, and I hope everyone listening to this like, will write this down as you invest in anything in, in the cancer world. Cancer is a complex disease. 
you cannot use a simple approach of just using epigenetics by itself to truly be able to predict all types of cancers and detect them early. It's just really difficult. I don't think it will ever happen with just using one modality, one. So that's the first aha and takeaway. The second is the fact that back, back then, diagnostics itself was very not sexy. It was really hard to get people to even pay attention to if you're building anything in the world of diagnostics. I think it has taken a few big wins and there are players who, and companies that have gone public with their diagnostic technologies for people to say, okay, aha, there is really, like, why are we still doing it in this old school way when we can actually find something early and the cost burden to the system is reduced by Y amount of dollars and you're actually extending lives by Z years. So, hey, that's changed. That's number two. Uh, the third is, I think that just the approach of using AI and machine learning to make this better, I think has also accelerated bringing really worthy diagnostics to market. Uh, we're proud to support, like to me, when I look at uh, Freenome, uh, part of it is like, hey, if it works, you truly are. I mean, think about recently, I mean, we, we just lost someone uh, who was 43 years old, a star from Black Panther to uh, colorectal cancer and something which I wish we'd caught early. I wish it was a simple diagnostic that could be in the hands of everyone where we all get screened. And if it is diagnosed early, there is a good chance that it can be treated and you will be okay. And so what Freenome did, why this fits in really well is it takes care of some of my challenges from the past life. One, they do recognize from the start that cancer is a complex disease and they use a multiomics approach for diagnosing and detecting cancer early and screening. So that's the first. The second is the fact that you can do something about it. Even if you find that there is early, you may then ask the same patient to get another colonoscopy. You try and find something perhaps early and then you treat them early, thereby extending life, which I think is brilliant. And third, I think is uh, the team itself is absolutely brilliant. They've done such a good job. We go back into the team of tackling the world of tech bio. This team does have the technical chops in both computer science and medicine of being able to do it. And they have the data to show for it. And so I think that's what makes it a compelling case. And fast forward many years later, as you look at this category at large, uh, it's still baffling and puzzling that we don't have better tests out there that have, uh, hey, little pause from talking about cancer and look about, and let's talk about even COVID for a second. There are over 300 diagnostic tests that have been approved for EUA or any regulatory stamp for COVID diagnostics. 99% of these tests are PCR based. Like, let's think about that. What, why are we still like, we've moved past it, we have sequencing, we have all these better technologies and we're still using PCR from the eighties and the nineties as still like, yes, I'm sure we can all still like use a bicycle to go from New York to San Francisco, but I'm happy that there are planes and trains and better ways of doing it. And I still think that there are some parts, di diagnostics being one, where we're still stuck in one, two different worlds. There is this promise of like the freenome and the companies in that world, which can really bring us those airplanes that much needed to change the way we think about diagnostics. And hey, at the same time, the system sometimes tries to get us to say, but, but you could still walk but you could still bike. 
And hopefully that'll change in the next three years and it'll impact all our lives very positively. So Voss, would love to dive into a little bit more about um, what you were talking about with COVID-19 diagnostics and therapeutics. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the work that you guys have been doing at Artists? Uh, I know you guys have been creating some great infographic content. Sure, happy to. So earlier this year, we had like this aha moment and when we were all talking at artists and we observed like there were leaders talking about taking unapproved drugs and saying, I don't know, this is going to work. And it somewhat like shook like our constitution, our beliefs, because we got into this because data means everything to us and science means everything to us. And there, there was still a whole sense of people wanting to just go with what they thought are things and remedies that could just work for them. And so we spent the time and made a decision that it's not that we want to invest in COVID diagnostics or therapeutics or vaccines. And largely, I don't think we will, but we wanted to at least spend the time to work on and track all of the innovation that is occurring in the space and to start tracking that and their data legitimately to be able to share with both government bodies and people at large. So we've taken that upon us and started late February. We've been doing that every week. We put out an innovation tracker. And so it's on our website, so ad.co slash COVID, where we've tracked every diagnostic that has a regulatory approval, every vaccine and therapeutic that has gone into human trials. And what I'd say from this whole process, a couple observations. The first is there's no shortage of diagnostics. I mentioned before that majority of them are PCR, but it's still fine. We do have diagnostics. What is clearly lacking is process to administer this and scale it. Second, in terms of vaccines and therapeutics, in therapeutics, as you may imagine, a large part has been repurposed molecules and drugs. Nothing has been a big blockbuster yet. Nothing has really come in and we're hopeful that'll change in vaccines. I will say, the timelines of what people are hitting have been much more impressive than what we would have even expected in February. Like we never would, th would have thought it's conceivable in February to have a semblance of vaccine launched by the end of the year. And it seems like there are a couple of companies that are racing towards getting a phase three approval. Uh, I will say for anyone here, uh, we, we should wait and be patient to get the phase three trials and we should not bypass that. I think people are fundamentally already sometimes averse to being vaccinated. And the worst thing that can happen is to rush this process and to vaccinate people and uh, not having gone through the safety checks. Our FDA is the best in the world. And I, I think that we should give it the due time and process to get these through. And what I will say is it's promising to see the data so far. And I hope that we will get something through in the next uh, six months. Uh, super. Um, artists, you, you pride yourself in kind of really rolling up your sleeves on the back end post-investment. That's demonstrated, I think, in a couple ways with the concentration of your portfolio, investing in just a, a tight-knit group of companies, and of course, the phenomenal network of, of pioneers that you have. You also often take board seats um, for the investments that you participate in as well. Can you talk about kind of your approach post-investment, taking a board seat, what it's like to be a good board member and the, how y'all roll up your sleeves as VCs? Absolutely. So a large part of what becomes 
apparent once we've invested in these companies is typically the companies need board members to help in, I'd say four different ways. The first one is to help strategically in understanding how do you prioritize all of the different milestones and how do you organize? And so that's one which I think is uh, definitely adept in trying to help them figure out what are and how do you prioritize the variety of things you have to handle. The second is, I'll keep coming back to this theme again and again, which is people. Like your company is more than just the technology you build and more than just the product that you're gonna to take to market. It's about the people you are able to recruit and surround yourself with. Uh, having built this large CEO network, it is something which we can absolutely help with. So we oftentimes serve and help these companies find amazing people to come in early and work with them. The third is the idea of helping these companies fundraise. The one thing about artists, which you realize is sometimes people ask us like, oh, who do you typically compete with? What does that look like? Hey, we're in the world of life sciences. Maybe it's different in the world of tech out there and no dig at, at, at tech investors, anyone else out there. But I think that like, by and large, I think you'd agree with me, Chas, like in terms of like what you see is uh, life sciences we're collaborative. It takes a village to move these ideas forward. And so for us, it is about constantly sharing ideas with the people we have close ties with. And we encourage anyone else, like we, we love to get to work with different people because we recognize that we can't do this all alone. And it's about working with really smart people who are also equally energized by these tough challenges. And so that's something which is the third, which is the fundraising aspect, which is we can at least strategically help. How do you position it? What should that look like? And the fourth thing I'd say is not every day is a great day in building a company. There are some days when, you know, you just think, why am I doing it as a founder? There are other days when you're like, oh my God, how do I handle all of this stuff that is coming at me? And I think the fourth thing as a board member of what we do, which is important post-investment is just be there, actually be there. Like, there's a whole, again, group of people where the first thing is like, either you figured it out, you're the wrong person for the role. I totally disagree. I think the founders come in different flavors, different types, and it's our job to help them get through these important, tough moments and just be there for them. And we pride ourselves at artists at being there even in the toughest times. And hey, not every outcome is going to be great for us. We know that, you know that but it's how we handle it. It's the dignity with which we treat the people we work with that come into our lives that is so important to us. And it will always be important to us. So we will tackle these ideas, but hey, even in the worst case, you should know that we'll be there, we'll fight with you, and we'll hopefully get there together. It, it makes my day to hear you say that. Um, I think a lot of VCs uh, don't really have the founder empathy, if I'm being honest. And part of that, is, as you're saying, is just, um, as an early stage founder, you're, <laughs> you're walking around with a fire extinguisher trying to, to put out the flames every which day and to have that support from a board member like yourself uh, is an incredibly valuable thing. And to go along with that as well, just working with folks in life sciences, it's a collegial community. And I think we, we all have each other's backs uh, in the sense that at the end of the day, our companies at the end will make a mark. Um, when, when they're successful and importantly in the eyes of patients uh, deliver things into the clinic and really boost the status of care. 
but often you talk about kind of competition in that though, I feel that as West coast VCs, um, we are playing in a kind of a little bit of a space of our own when it comes to platforms and the other kind of paradigm shifts that West coast VCs look to fund. Can you talk about kind of that in the context of, of CRISPR and how one of those, um, and, and how that's the space that y'all have been pioneers with, particularly with, with Locus and Excision, would love to hear your thoughts there. Absolutely. I think that as we tackle spaces, especially platform plays, it is great that we've carved out like a world for ourselves here, but at the same time, the challenges that these companies eventually will need capital for the next rounds as well. And one of the things that we will observe for all of these things, it's great to sometimes be a pioneer and move first, but at the same time, you hope that people will catch up with you fast enough so that these companies get well-funded as well. And it becomes our job as investors to help paint that picture to the rest of the community, showcase these early opportunities. Because sometimes it takes a whole bunch of other VCs, the first few exits to get excited about our space. And as you know, we're moving into spaces well before that, like we're sometimes the first to make that happen. So in terms of like in the CRISPR and gene editing space, uh, what I will say is uh, we are open to funding ideas anywhere in the world. Uh, in, in this case, it happens to be the seminal technology for excision came from Philadelphia. And we got in the world of Locust, it's in North Carolina. And where both of these companies, I think, has been an incredible journey to be able to see how something from a strong academic sense and great data was able to translate into great companies. And we found partners along the way. And I think that in terms of showcasing these technologies to investors, I think some part of it becomes, uh, in a way, these founders have to almost have a uh, two brains a one go, one ready to talk to the traditional tech investors who are able to see this vision and able to see how they can accelerate it with using good technology, and a second brain almost where you're talking to traditional life science investors, where you're showcasing the great bioavailability or biodistribution or the safety, the PKPD in order to be able to say, hey, look, look at this, and this is actually great data. And I think the kind of questions coming uh, both ways means, again, going back to the founder, it, and how we have to help is get them ready for the both sides. So the truth is you as a founder have to be open to and adapt to who you're pitching as well. That's uh, an absolute certainty there. And uh, I, I think when it comes to these paradigm shifts, you talk about um, one of the most famous exits in the space uh, is, is stem centrics. And that happens to be a portfolio company of y'all's. Can you talk about kind of that, that journey as that company grew and, their process from formation to exit, I think that would be really illuminating for our audience to recognize uh, how some of these paradigm shifts will come full circle. Absolutely. So Semcentrics was something which our, my partner artist, Stuart Peterson, was able to identify early on. Uh, he was on the board of Stemcentrics, uh, and he became the first institutional investor through artists to, to fund this company. What is unique, maybe sometimes the untold story of STEM is uh, one, I mean, everyone knows that persistence, the fact that they were the first to use a, a, a novel, it was at that point novel technology to be able to bring to market. But I, I will say when they were trying to raise money at that time, uh, we had the traditional tech funds in the Valley and majority of them uh, were averse to funding anything life sciences. 
it's interesting because I think these same traditional funds that are tech now have seen the opportunity in life sciences and they've moved there. I'm happy for that because you know what? Every dollar that goes towards funding something that can help any of our lives, I welcome more people to come in and invest in the space. What is worth noting is it was challenging because I think that at that point, uh, I think it was Peter Thiel and Founders Fund who took a chance and to come back into it and help in solidifying the investment base and move forward. But like most of the other traditional VCs in the Valley, I think were like, nope, this is not for us. We do everything but life sciences. That I think is an interesting part of STEM. And the other part, which I think is, uh, they were really clever in how they built out their programs and partnered and how they used cash efficiently. It was a really well-run company. And I think that for all of you founders building it, I think there is something because when it comes to the time of acquisition, it's yes, your data will stand and there's one part, but how you've run, how much cash you have on hand is another, how you built out your team is another. And I think Stemcentric's founders have done, did a phenomenal job in building out the company. So I think Stu tells us this story at artists all the time because I think that for us, the benefit of both wins and misses in your portfolio are things that you can take. So it's important for us as a partnership to talk about it. And I think that that is something that we always ask Stu, like, hey, what else? Uh, there are things that he said, like, look, Stemcentrics didn't really have even a website early on. Like they were focused on doing great science. There are some founders today who will spend all their time in getting a flashy message and a video out to, to hype up what they're doing. That was the opposite of STEM-centrics. They focused on doing good science. And look, at the end of the day, uh, even the best science and novel pathways may not work in clinic. And that is such a pity for every patient who is counting on this technology to work. But what we can do is ensure that there's the best path forward there and hope that each of these things will work and we create a path for it forward. That's terrific, Voss. Thanks for sharing the anecdote with us. Um, we always like to reserve the, the last part of these podcasts just to kind of go through the journey um, and do a little reflection, if you will. Um, what for you has, has changed uh, since you first got into VC? Would love to learn um, how the landscapes evolved for you, both personally and, pro- and professionally. I, I would say uh, in terms of like, as, as I got into the space of like investing in the tech file, I think uh, part of like what we always wanted to do was great, great, get great science and fund these founders to be able to help them take something to fruition. Uh, what has changed is that there's been excitement from many other funds who non-traditionally would never look at a space like tech file who have become excited about this. And I think that's great for founders at large. Great for anyone doing tech bio at large. So that's one thing which I think has actually uh, changed for the better. Uh, The second, I think, is obviously, let's not forget of the horrific pandemic that we're in the middle of. It has changed how we invest in what we do as an industry at large. I mean, I'm not sure about you, but like, weren't all our other meetings, we actually got to meet and spend time with our founders. We got to we really got to know them before we invested. And now it does happen over Zoom and it does happen without travel. That is a fundamental shift in how we are looking. And it's not like we're slowed down the number of investments. It's not that we've slowed down the fact that we want to deploy capital, but it's just, just different how we have to try and vet people and how we have to get to know them. A third thing I'd say, which has changed, is in terms of like the 
overall uh, acceleration of like, there, there has been certain things like telemedicine, uh, which we thought would have worked a lot slower too. And it seems like as a category, there are a few things that have accelerated dramatically in the past like six months to a year. And since my VC journey, for if you were to take the overall period of time, I, I will say the positive things is that many folks from the world of pharma have now become open to the idea of what will it look like if I were to work and found or be part of a team in a startup. And I will say that's very different about 10 years ago. Like you were to go talk to an EVP at a Pfizer and you say, hey, come into a startup. I think they'd be like, what? no, my life's pretty cushy. This is great. And now they're like, hmm, the kind of impact I can have in building companies on the outside that is nimble, which will likely get acquired or find a path back into clinic is, I, I think it's amazing to see the quality of talent that is getting into the world of building startups. And every month that goes by, I'm just blown away by the incredible people that I'm fortunate to just encounter in this world. Yeah, it definitely changes a lot over time. Um, there's tons of different trends that are changing. What advice would you give yourself in this context, um, maybe one, five, or 10 years ago? So I think that like this is something which would be the same advice that I'd give myself a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, and it's actually the same simple principle. It's all about the people. Really, I mean, I would tell, tell a new grad graduating from any university, any program, uh, STEM or non-STEM, you sometimes look for the sexy company to go to just because they're in the press a lot. Or you may have thought in my, my world when I was graduating, everyone wanted to work for Google and Facebook uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. But instead I ask who at Google and Facebook are you working for? Who at a small startup are you working for? I've always found like in my life, I've been able to skip steps and move forward quickly because I've been fortunate to surround myself with people who I've admired deeply and people who have given me that opportunity to step up. I mean, you think about artists, like I was friends with Stuart, but also someone I looked up to and the way he thought about the world of venture. And that was my foray into it. In the past, I had a chance with Jeff Kindler, the former CEO of Pfizer, someone I looked up to, but also someone who could help me uh, Hey, let's go back to my past, right? I'm the son of a single mother with, who is a teacher and with no business network at all. I'm an immigrant. I came in here with uh, probably the only person in Southern California, UCI, without a car, with three jobs, trying to make things work. And how does a person with no network, how does a person with no real semblance of knowing how things work here move forward? It's all about the people. And I've stuck to that from the very beginning and I've made my bet on the people I surround myself with. And I'm very loyal to the people I surround myself with. And that has paid off in spades. And I'm so grateful to them and I will always be grateful to them. But it's the same for my first undergraduate professor at UC Irvine who gave me that first chance and paying me to do summer research and then full year research to my advisors at Hopkins who said, it's okay that you're an academic to still commercialize your technology and license it out to pharma or a diagnostic company uh, or a McKinsey or past that. I've always had these amazing people who have helped me just 
differentiate from everyone else. And so that's my advice. So one year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, it doesn't matter. Uh, follow great people. Voss, thank you so much for joining us today. What a wonderful conversation and highlights uh, to share with our listeners here. We so appreciate your time. Uh, any parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our group here or uh, any plugs for portfolio organizations you're part of? First of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I will say if you are a founder out there with a bold vision, like don't give up. The journey is tough. You may think you're alone, but you're not. There are many people here, me included. I, I, we want to support and we want to bring your amazing technology to life. I'll also say I'm on the board of the Association for Women in Science or AWIS, the oldest and largest organization for women in STEM. And we see this constant struggle of like seeing uh, women entrepreneurs, uh, women in STEM starting companies as well. It's hugely underrepresented. So if you are a woman entrepreneur or women in STEM thinking about this opportunity, just know that there are many people rooting for you, wanting this to actually happen so much so that we even started a program called STEM to Market through AWIS wherein even if it's not funding, we work with women in STEM in helping getting started. We will help give you advice on what it's like to network with VCs, how to take your ideas, construct them into companies. And hopefully, if anything, just know that we're here to have that conversation to get started. And look, this is for anyone. I don't care like where in the world you are. If you have a bold idea and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you grew up with the connections or you didn't, like. Our goal is just to take these most brilliant ideas, distill them, and give your idea a chance. And our doors are open, and we genuinely mean it. Like, if anything, contact us. We may not fund you. You should understand we do have a sense of what we have to fund, but that doesn't mean we don't want to support. Uh, I don't know about other firms, and many firms will feel the same way, but us in particular, we are a small firm. But the kind of impact we want to have should never be small. The kind of influence we can have on people to get started should not be small. So if you do have a bold idea and you want to talk, our doors are open, our Zooms are open. Like, just let us know and we're happy to chat with you. That was absolutely fantastic, boss. Really, really, really pleasure having you on the show. And uh, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.